Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Chris Fibole, Staff Actuary, Communications and Public Affairs at the CIA. Today, we will be discussing the CIA's public statement on pharmacare, which can be found on the CIA website. Joining me today is Paul Kennedy, who is a member of the task force responsible for creating the statement. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much, Chris. So to start off, maybe can you define the issue that this statement wanted to address? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much again, first and foremost. And certainly before I get into the answer to that, I do want to set the stage. Uh, As of today, prescription drugs represent the second highest cost in the healthcare sector in Canada, after hospitals, but before physicians. The idea of national pharmacare is not new, but it has accelerated in recent years including the federal government's establishment of the Advisory Council on the Implementation of a National Pharmacare Program, chaired by Dr. Eric Hoskins, former Minister of Health and Long-Term Care for Ontario. This council submitted its 171-page final report in June of 2019. Obviously, we won't have the time to rehash it all here today, but at a very high level, the report called for the establishment of a universal single-payer pharmacare plan. The plan would mirror Medicare, as we know it, in many ways, including, as mentioned, a universal single-payer public pharmacare plan, a federal framework which would lend itself to the same five principles or pillars that guide the Canada Health Act, namely universality, comprehensiveness, accessibility, portability from one province to another, and public administration and a design that would place all Canadians, including those who have private coverage today through, for example, an employer group benefits plan, onto the national plan. The national plan features a very comprehensive formulary and very low co-payments. At the end of the day, the national plan would be estimated to cost $15 billion by the time full implementation occurs in 2027. And while this $15 billion was the price tag, the economy's total drug spending, according to, again, to the Hoskins report, was estimated to decrease from $52 billion to $47 billion through negotiating power, administrative efficiencies, and lower administrative costs. Our task force identified the following, shall I say, areas of discomfort with the Hoskins report. First, the solution advocated by the Hoskins report is somewhat of a remote-controlled solution. That is, the solution naturally comes from the mandate. The Government of Canada asked the Council for a report on a national program, and the Hoskins Committee responded by proposing a model of provincial Medicare. We're uncomfortable with such a narrow approach. Second, when we know the history of Medicare has included the federal government initially financing 50% of the cost and has since fallen to 25%. And furthermore, the government recently refusing to increase that to 35% just this past September. It would be understanding for the provinces to be skeptical about partnering with the federal government in a pharmacare program. The Hoskins report does not address this issue, aside from some general let's increase taxes type of strategies in order to pay for this. Third, we are all in agreement that the cost of drugs has historically risen faster than inflation. And even in the most optimistic scenario of a very well-run and managed universal prescription drug program, 
given our aging population and the recent explosion of high-cost drugs, inflation will continue. Today, these increases that we do see are being shared by a mix of governments, employers, and everyday Canadian citizens. So we do wonder if shifting all of this inflation risk to the government alone may threaten the viability of other public programs in the long run. Fourth, there have been other analyses conducted that are out there which have reached different conclusions concerning the price tag of $15 billion or the lowering of the overall drug spend by $5 billion. The lack of detail in the Hoskins report concerning their analysis is a major concern for provinces in terms of making informed decisions to participate in a national pharmacare program or not. We believe that a much more in-depth analysis of the cost and savings resulting from drug coverage, and not just at a point in time, but over a longer horizon, would be necessary before any decision is made. And lastly, the Hoskins report rightfully described National Pharmacare as our generation's national project. With drug costs currently sitting in between hospital and physician costs, as already mentioned, Pharmacare clearly represents the most significant public policy related to healthcare since the advent of Medicare. So extreme care must be taken to ensure the financial viability of this program, because if this launches, we are in this for the long haul. As such, we are a bit perplexed that the council did not include much, if any, actuarial representation from the private insurance industry, those who specialize in public policy, or those who represent employers. Thanks, Chris. Okay, of course, we encourage everybody to read the statement on the website, but right now, can you just give us a summary of the main elements of the CIA's recommendations? Yeah, thanks, Chris. So before I dive into the question, another little preamble. There was an Angus Reid survey from this past October that indicated that 9 out of 10 Canadians either strongly support or moderately support national pharmacare. The same survey indicated that one quarter of Canadians were paying at least 50% of their drug costs last year, rising to 37% for lower income Canadians. These types of numbers are consistent with statistics that are provided in the Hoskins report. And so the CIA is supportive of the position that Canadians should have access to affordable prescription medication. The question really is, how do we get there? And more specifically, how do we get there as quickly and as realistically as possible? Earlier in the past question, we discussed the issues that our task force identified with the Hoskins report. In the absence of very significant and guaranteed federal funding, is it reasonable to assume that provinces and territories will agree to a plan that covers such a large formulary of drugs with very minimal cost sharing? Any answer I provide to that question is obviously subjective. But what we do know is provinces have different demographic trends, different political environments and considerations, different budget availability, and different existing prescription drug plans and the regulatory considerations that govern them. Therefore, we believe that the kind of one-size-fits-all plan design proposed in the Hoskins report would be challenging to get all provincial jurisdictions to agree to. So this leads to our first recommendation from our task force, which is to provide the provinces and the territories with the flexibility to design a universal prescription drug plan that best meets their needs and their realities. This can include, for example, 
employing traditional insurance mechanisms such as copayments and deductibles is what is currently done, for example, in Quebec's RAMQ plan, but also coordination with private plans. The federal government's role in this regard may be to establish minimum design standards, but regardless, we do believe that flexibility in design is of paramount importance to get PharmaCare across the finish line as soon as possible. While this will undeniably lead to variation from province to province in respect of design, we do believe in consistency across all provinces when it comes to the list of covered med medications or the formulary. Such consistency will ensure the pillar of portability for Canadians, as well as the peace of mind that their med medications will be available if they decide to relocate to a new province or territory. But provinces or private plans should be afforded the ability to cover drugs above and beyond the national formulary if they wish to do so. And that points again back to the flexibility. Third, our recommendations call for the federal government to, in effect, act as a reinsurer for all Canadians by, first of all, covering drugs on the national formulary that exceed a certain to-be-determined limit for an individual Canadian, effectively individual stop-loss coverage. But also, separating out a classification of kind of extreme cost drugs, which would be fully insured by the federal government. The actuarial principle behind this would be pooling, as an example of a drug that's out there today, Solaris, which is a miracle drug that treats some extremely rare blood disorders, comes with a $700,000 per year price tag, per year. It is estimated that there are currently 180 Canadians on this drug. So when we start talking about these kinds of extreme low frequency but extreme high severity type drugs, it becomes less and less reasonable to assume that the distribution of these patients across the provinces and territories will mirror the general population. If 20%, for example, of these claimants on Solaris lived in New Brunswick, which by the way is a completely possible scenario that could be devastating to the New Brunswick Pharmacare program in general. So instead of the traditional kind of transfer payment that the federal government has employed in the past when it comes to Medicare and continues to employ when it comes to Medicare, provinces will be rightfully skeptical about that type of approach again, especially considering, as mentioned before, that the funding has fallen from 50% of expenditures down to under 25. So Having the federal government's role as a reinsurer and providing funding through that role uh, helps to encourage participation by helping the provinces and territories manage their cost volatility, achieve more predictable budgeting, and instilling, frankly, longer-term confidence in the viability of the PharmaCare program in its entirety. Also, because we recommend the the federal government to backstop both public and private pharmacare plans, employers would also be receiving the same benefits in terms of managing their cost of volatility and achieving more predictable budgeting. And finally, just to plug here for actuaries, we also strongly recommend the creation of a committee from the government as they continue down this path, composed of not only the federal and provincial representatives who have the decision-making power, but also actuaries 
experts in the insurance field and employer representatives who would be tasked to identify and analyze the data relevant to the cost and potential savings of the proposed framework and turn it into a long-term, robust, cautious, and unbiased financial analysis. Okay, so how are some of the key ways this framework differs from other structures that have been proposed? You mentioned the, the Hoskins report and others that are out there. Absolutely. So certainly in comparison with the Hoskins report, the framework that our task force identified is quite different. Uh, you know, first and foremost, contrary to the Hoskins report, we suggest starting with what already exists instead of effectively wiping the slate clean. You know, we go back to the old adage of if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? And our current prescription drug care system is certainly not broken and has a lot of intellectual capital and expertise within it that can really help uh, drive a successful national pharmacare program. Second, contrary to Hoskins, we do envision an important and significant role for the private sector. We first of all envision them playing a role in continuing to provide coverage to Canadians, which for example, could be akin to their role today uh, when it comes to residents under the age of 25 in Ontario. Those residents are covered by the OHIP Plus program, which provides uh, access to over 4,400 prescription drugs, unless that resident is a member of a employer benefits plan or a private drug coverage, right? Then they would be no longer eligible under the public plan. And second, by retaining the role of insurers and the private sector as financial contributors to the pharmacare, I alluded to this earlier, but the public ends up benefiting by retaining the intellectual capital and capacity for innovation. Several innovations over the years have aimed and succeeded at controlling the drug costs as best as possible, whether we're talking about generic substitution or more recently biosimilar substitution, stepwise therapy, managed formularies, eligibility checks, etc. These have come from the private sector. Contrary to Hoskins, third point, we envision guaranteed federal funding by having, again, the federal government participate in its role as a reinsurer. It bears repeating that because transition transfer payment model for Medicare has not kept pace with healthcare inflation, the federal funding of Medicare has fallen quite substantially. And again, provinces would understandably be skeptical if the federal government were again to propose such a system for provinces who choose to participate in a national pharmacare plan. Instead, we envision the, fed, the federal government acting as a true partner to both the provinces and act as a stakeholder in a national pharmacare program. Also contrary to Hoskins, lastly, we do recommend the development of a long horizon projection of costs and an independent and thorough long-term financial analysis. We recommend 20 years, that is, a study that truly reconciles all of the divergent studies that exist today and considers the possibility that expected savings, as noted in the Hoskins report, are not fully realized. And what would be the role of private insurers and the federal, provincial, and territorial governments uh, within the framework that was proposed by the CIA? Yeah, so 
let's summarize a little bit again of uh, what's been discussed so far. Certainly, again, with the federal government, we do envision them as that reinsurer for patients who are heavy consumers of drugs that, or seriously ill patients who are in need of very expensive drugs. The federal government would bear the full cost of this reinsurance, and that would be their financial contribution towards this plan. Provincial and territorial governments would continue to cover their traditional clientele, that is, you know, members perhaps on social assistance and or senior citizens who are not covered under private plans. We would add as a clientele, at a minimum, those who do not have access currently to a private plan. A question certainly arises in this case, which would be, you know, would people be allowed to purchase, for example, individual drug insurance from an insurer that meets the parameters of like the minimum parameters that are set out by a national pharmacare program? We certainly didn't go into this level of detail, and it's not an easy answer because of the question of control. How can you make sure that everybody is covered? This is why, for example, in Quebec, uh, which does mandate coverage for all of its residents, they chose to limit this to limit the private drug insurance to group plans only. Another province may decide, for example, to allow individual plans, though. It's part of the flexibility, again, that we're talking about when it comes to provinces and territories and their decision to participate or not. We envision that private insurers would continue to offer group drug coverage for their employees and dependents, as is currently the case. And for private reinsurers or reinsurance organizations that are set up by the insurance industry, such as, for example, today's EP3 system, we envision that they would continue to provide that reinsurance to private insurers, as is the case today. The big difference being the role, again, of the federal government in terms of backstopping all Canadians and their drug costs. And what conclusions did you draw regarding a national list of insured drugs? Yeah, so while covering a list of, you know, as the Hoskins report put it, essential medications, that would, you know, presumably be free of much controversy in terms of what drugs end up on that formulary. But we certainly get into a very complex and complicated area when we start discussing high-cost specialty drugs. As discussed earlier when we were talking about Solaris, there are some miracle drugs out there today which come with near or in excess of million-dollar price tags. So how does the overseeing committee that, it, that will be tasked with determining which drugs are on this national formulary make the decision? There are cost implications, there are ethical implications, there are political implications all to juggle. It's clearly beyond our scope as actuaries, but we do believe that any decision to cover a drug or not cover it be open and transparent and made on the basis of objective parameters. You know, what does the evidence say in terms of the drug's effectiveness? What are the potential patient outcomes? Even with all this information, though, again, I cannot personally imagine how difficult some of these decisions would be to make. But in practice, I'll use this example, it is happening today. Look at the various task forces that provinces have established to, for example, prioritize Canadians as ethically as possible in terms of who should be at the front of the line for the COVID-19 vaccine. So let's wrap up with what do you hope to see next? What do you see as the, uh, the steps following this? 
Absolutely. So, you know, first and foremost, it probably goes without saying, but we hope that governments will consider the proposal that we have put forward. I revert back to what we believe at the CIA, which is that all Canadians should have access to affordable medications. We believe that building on the existing drug infrastructure, as opposed to starting it from scratch, will help to launch such a program as quickly as possible. And again, once this launches, there really is no turning back. So we need to ensure the long-term viability of the program. And as such, I do hope that governments will consider our views and help to make them reality. But especially as we emerge from COVID, it is important for governments and for medical practitioners to also work on strategies to improve the general health of Canadians by actively promoting and encouraging healthy lifestyles. For example, better adherence to primary care like annual physical exams, promotion of exercise and the healthy consumption of food, uh, continuing to tear down the stigma associated with mental health issues. The execution of these strategies will benefit the healthcare system in general and is of particular importance when you consider that our population does continue to age. We see such strategies as complementary to a pharmacare plan, helping to treat both the cause and the effect as opposed to just the latter. And if you would like to see a copy of the public statement on pharmacare, you can access it from the website at cia-ica.ca forward slash pharmacare. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us about the statement today. It's been my pleasure, Chris. We now have over six dozen episodes in our podcast series, so we certainly encourage everybody to subscribe. Uh, you can do so through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you use to access your podcast content. If you like today's episode, uh, please leave us a five-star rating or a comment. And we would like to hear from you, so please send any suggestions or episode ideas to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. Until next time, I'm Chris Fivoli, and thank you for tuning in to Seeing Beyond Risk.